to another episode of Dark Matters Podcast. My name is Jay Austin Yoshino. I am the editor-in-chief of Fresh Pulp Magazine, and I am your host. In the next little square next to me is my brilliant co-host and the and our future strategist at Fresh Pulp Magazine. She is also the executive director and co-founder of Muslim Anti-Racism Collaborative. Um, they have tons of wonderful anti-racism competency training, We've got some coming up in October. Go check out the website, muslimarc.org, and engage with that content. Check out check us out on social media. Um, welcome, Marguerite. Thank you for once again for doing this with me. Welcome. It is such an honor. Why am I doing, I don't know what Bella Rios would be doing, you know, like getting that. <laughs> this is such an honor to be here. Seriously. You would be like, oh. you, would, you would be like talking about what an honor it is to be here while punching out a black woman. Yeah, and then, you know, quoting Bhagavad Gita. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what, that's exactly what he would be doing. Nice nice, uh, na- nice name drop, nice callback. So um, we've got a bit to catch up on. So it's been a busy couple of weeks for you, so we're glad to have you back. Um, we, I, I guess I'm going to do like, we, I guess we kind of need to dive right into it because I'm going to do like an Ahsoka beats real quick, which was last week, which was um, Ahsoka and Sabine decided that they were going to go and chase down the Dark Jedi and uh, Lady Elspeth and uh, try to um, stop them from using. They, they needed to find them. They went to a planet. They needed to find what planet they went to with the map. And... Um, they discovered, I, and honestly, I forget how they discovered it, but they discovered what planet it was. They decided to hyper jump to it. They told Admiral Sindula, uh, General Sindula, that she needed to like try and get some backup from from the Republic. They get there. The the, the giant subspace ring starts shooting at them, and um, and also some fighters show up and start shooting at them. So like the whole episode was basically just like fighter combat and then and then them setting down on the on the nearby planet um but also it was also Sindula was trying to get back up to them so and i'm really stepping over a lot of the beats here but there really wasn't a whole lot of meat like while they were in transit she was training sabine and using the lightsaber and the droid was training her too and they were talking about using the force um and then they get basically um disabled by a fighter Ahsoka gets out of the ship with her lightsaber to flex a bunch of blaster bolts, right? Coming from a fighter, <laughs> right? And then like gets back and 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 gets back then gets back into the ship. They fly to the nearby planet and land and hide from the, the pursuing fighters. And so in the next episode, Syndulla doesn't get the backup, but she ends up taking a few select ships and a Krillin stocklight flader, and they take they take off for the whatever that system is called to find um, to stop Lady Elspeth. Uh, Sabine and, and Ahsoka are on the planet. They get attacked by droids. Realize that they're you know that that they're near this place where the map is being used. They decide to go find and confront Lady Elizabeth and the two Dark Jedi to once and for all take uh, the map and and stop their plan to to bring a Thrawn back to this galaxy. It ends up that um, that one masked Jedi, who I forget what his name is, and apparently my theory about him being um, Ezra Bridger is wrong. But that one masked Jedi and the little blonde-haired Jedi, who I can't remember what her name is because it's just beneath me to remember, um, 
They get into a fight. We're just being petty to not remember. We're, we're, I'm being a little bit petty. They get into a fight. Ahsoka defeats her dude, goes and runs off to go, and, and Sabine's like, I got this. And there, so she, she continues fighting the little blonde Jedi. Ahsoka runs off to go um, and fight. I, ke- I keep wanting to call him Ray Livingston, but the other dark Jedi. Um, and they fight, and she basically gets, like, she basically succeeds in taking the map. It burns her hand. She drops it. The blonde Jedi comes out of the out of the woods, and Ahsoka automatically assumes that she basically killed Sabine. But she ends up like knocking her out, and then getting into a fight with you know continuing her fight with the dark Jedi. He ends up like knocking her off this cliff, and she disappears. And then Sabine shows up, and the dark Jedi is like, "Hey, you should join us because we know you. We know about Ezra Bridger, and you. We know you want to see him again. And I know it's like that family. And like, give me the map." She's like holding a blaster at the map, like she gets it and she's holding it, and she's she gives it to him, and then, right as as, Sindula is coming out of of hyperspace, the subspace ring is taking off, right, and basically destroys a couple of fighters in the process by ramming them, and and a couple of the fighters just kind of get disarrayed, and then, and then at the very end of the episode, you see Ahsoka and she's in like this alternate force dimension. And Anakin Skywalker is there, so that's pretty much. And I and I, and I have so many trope problems. I mean, let, let me, let, let's <laughs> let's hear let, this trope. We have like lots of dystropia this week. So let like like let me get your initial impressions on on what's like been going on. I mean, when we, I mean, it's sort of like when you have like the plot armor, when you know, like the inevitable is going to happen, like, oh yeah, they're going to fight this thing. So it's, so it's, it's like the stakes are like, it's supposed to be revving up the stakes, but it's not happening, you know, like it's so that that's, I, I, I mean, I'm just going to go into my opinion. So that kind of annoys me, right? Like, because you know, it has to go to this next level. Like they got to, they keep mentioning Ezra. So you're going to see Ezra, you know, this has got to happen. If, if they don't, I mean, you know, like any Ahsoka series fans will riot. So that's the thing that is a little bit like, um, annoying, you know, like it's sort of like insults the viewer's intelligence and doesn't make the best TV. It's like, it's really like sort of like that fan service, like, but, or you're just like what you expect to happen. So you're not even like, wow, I feel smart for guessing that they're like, Ezra, if you want to see Ezra, if you want to see Ezra. So, you know, they're going to get there. Like, right. They're fighting over this map. So what do do they call that? That's the, um, the other trope. It's like the MacGuffin, you know, like it's like the thing that they're keep chasing. So the map becomes that thing that just becomes a whole reason for the story, but it doesn't work well. It doesn't feel like they, like the way that they kind of move through that in a fight over them. It just doesn't, I think they could have done better. Like, you know, like, I mean, I know we're in writer strike Terry solidarity for the writers. Um, and maybe they're like really awesome people. And I'm sure they're just, you know, like no, no haterism for that as somebody that's an aspiring writer at the same time like give us some good stuff you know give us some good where there are high stakes and we're not just like just waiting in expectation for what would happen so that's how i felt like or for one specific mm -hmm. thing to happen yeah 
for it to jump. Like we knew that ring was going to make it. Like why? Because the plot has to go in that direction right. as opposed to us surprising and going in surprising directions that we would have not guessed or building up the tension. They're just moving us through to get to achieve our expectation. Like how are they going to get there without necessarily doing the same type of work that, um, like where I felt like what Frank Herbert did, like you knew the ending of the story by the like, by what was happening, but it was just that um, we never knew, like you you just had to figure out what were the beats that were gonna get you there. Yeah. So this one, you're like, yeah, there's gonna be a fight and there's gonna be another fight and there's gonna be another fight to show something really cool. So that's how I felt about that too. Well, episodes. speaking of Dune, I wanna mention this because, you know, one of the things, he actually did the anti-MacGuffin, right? Because Paul Atreides, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna sidetrack because I wanna compare this to what's happening in modern writing. You know, Paul Atreides had this, this skill called the prescience, right, which allowed him to be able to see, you know, you know, to some degree kind of see or predict, you know, future events, right? Um, and it was really more of a kind of pattern recognition than like a power, you know? But the, 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 the one of the things he said, and I remember when he was fighting Jameis, one of the things that he mentioned in that fight scene was that there were two, that, 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 that the number of events that could, that could occur in a simple knife fight were too granular. They were too small for him to be able to see because there could be any number of, of, of variations of that fight. So, so it didn't really help him in personal combat. That made sense, right? Because he could just as easily have gone the opposite direction and said, well, because I knew that Jameis was going to do a knife hand switch, I decided to do the opposite, feign left. And, you know, he didn't do mm -hmm. that. So, but I do want to talk about why and I think you and I may disagree disagree on this a little bit. I'm not 100% sure, but I am a canon person. And, the, and, and Ahsoka and some of the other properties are precisely the reason why I feel like canon is important. Because if you can write things to mean just whatever you want them to mean, then they really don't have any meaning, right? And so I think that when people step all over the canon, like there are boundaries that you can write inside of that people feel like may be constricting, but I think that they make the writing more interesting, right? And I think that in – and there are some things that they're doing that just don't make any sense at all. Why is General Sandula's son in the fighter with her? That makes zero sense to me. I was very stressed out about that, right? Um, anyway, so going back to this this thing with Ahsoka, and there's a couple of things that we can talk about here. Number one, in the fight, she in the, the fighter fight, she gets out of her ship, gets onto the wing, and she uses a lightsaber to deflect blaster bolts from a starfighter. Now, in some instances, that may be plausible, right? It may be plausible for a blaster bolt to be deflected or a couple. But this fighter is shooting at her like a machine gun. And she's like, and she's not even deflecting all of them. Like the ship is still getting hit, right? <laughs> so like there's, a, there's an element of this that struck me as being kind of pointless. And also, so I'm going to pause for a second. So relating this back to, um, to, to Osoka, the idea of, of canon, you know, like, for example, Sabine is not a Jedi because Ahsoka is not a Jedi, right? And we talked about this a couple weeks ago about how, how everybody has some degree of force sensitivity, but there's a reason why Jedi are Jedi and why not everybody's a Jedi. And part of that is because the more powerful you are, the more corrupting and an influence the force potentially is, right? 
Sabine doesn't even appear to have the ability of even like a youngling, basic youngling, like 10 year old Jedi. Like, and I really felt like Ahsoka kind of struggled to move that teacup. Like I was like, dude, Luke Skywalker was in the jungle, like levitating droids and rocks all at once. And you can't even seem to be able to move. I mean, not that that she's comparable. Obviously, Luke Skywalker is like, he's the pinnacle of Jedi-ness, right? But she should at least be, have, so finally, I'm going to say this about it. Okay. Because I saw somebody post about this yesterday about Adam Driver's uh, and, and Daisy Ridley's fight scene in the Imperial in, in General Snoke's chambers with the Red Jedi. And he's got this giant Claymore style blade, which it's in the movie, it appears to be so heavy that he's dragging it along the floor. I want to be clear about something. Lasers, light, and therefore by extension, lightsabers are weightless. They are weightless. The only part of a lightsaber that has any weight is the handle. Okay. If you are dragging a handle that weighs under a pound, like it's a 14-pound Claymore, something is wrong with you know, the handle. I think it's also important to know that in order to wield a lightsaber, you can't just be Force-sensitive. You, you have to be trained in its use. Because they're weightless, they are incredibly destructive. Like, you could slice your own hand off. And part of fighting in a lightsaber fight is this level of force sensitivity that is that requires prescience, right? It requires incredible speed. It requires incredible stamina. So people's ability in lightsaber combat is directly tied to their ability in the force. So by all those, those counts, Sabine Wren should never be wielding a lightsaber, especially against somebody who is clearly more powerful than her. That's it. I think really important points because i mean when you think about like what a lightsaber could do and what it could cut like you know when they're doing all this stuff like you could cut yourself easily like boom it's like i mean yeah just like with any like sword or i mean if you cook in the kitchen you will know like you know it's just like a lot of newbie cooks have like they they nick their fingers you know or cut their fingers and so but I, as the skilled chef that I am, as a skilled cook, not, you know, trained, like I have not cut myself in since my early 20s. So, oh, you know, I'm very proud of that. <laughs> three days ago. Three, three so, days ago for me. The technique. But we know, I mean, one of the, the um, there's a saying that the, the most dangerous knife is a dull knife. Um, but I would think it's like the... Um, you know, the, cause it slips, right? Like it can slip or you're trying to get there, yep. but really like it's, you know, it's the kind of technique and, and the care I used to have my, um, my ex used to get a lot really nervous for some reason about whenever I would cut stuff. But I mean, he actually, he was a trained chef, a line, you know, he did, he was a line order cook and he cut himself a few times, but I was like, I oh, yeah. never had, so I was going to flex on that, you know. <laughs> peasant style cooking you know like your grandma style it's just like how you know you have to know intuitively the knife and your limits and just you know yes. you're just being careful so the um i always think about that right when you have people practicing right and so they're practicing on these dummy mm -hmm. swords like they're out there i sent you a link to to um a woman that was doing the sword fighting and stuff yes. like that or she was doing the and i was like i wanted to know what you thought about that because it's mm. like, if it's dull, if it's not sharpened, you know, and you have lots of practice, you're not going to hurt yourself. But actually doing those moves 
which we're seeing in the later episodes of Star Wars. I mean, or like the, the, the prequels where the sword fights are really amazing and intricate, but those make me nervous because of the potential damage. And so it made sense for me when I was younger and watching Star Wars to see how slow those fights were between yes. Obi-Wan and, and Darth Vader because of just like how powerful they were. So that was just my thoughts. And so now I'm just kind of like, you know, how many nicks really did happen? If we look at the physics of these fights, I mean, some of those, like those, um, you know, the sword choreography, they're just defying the laws of physics and the, the laws of lightsaber. Um, so I, I did see that video, by the way, and, and, and I've seen her videos. I've seen her many times. I love her. She is, and I'm, I'm sorry, I forget what her name is, but she ha she is so physically talented. And mm -hmm. like, I would love to like work with her one day in like a movie or something. Like, I think she's put herself out there as a stunt person and she would absolutely make a great stunt person and, and fight choreography. The one thing yeah. that sort of raised my eyebrow a little bit was she said self-taught martial artist, which in and of itself does not invalidate her ability as a martial artist. It, it doesn't. I mean, you know, there are a lot, there are plenty mm -hmm. of people who have, who have learned to fight. Um, and also every martial, every martial arts that, that, that exists today was created by somebody who initially was self-taught, right? Like, if you go back in the genealogy of martial arts, right? Like, like Eastern martial arts started basically by farmers in China in like the sixth century BC, something crazy like that. And those people didn't know anything about, you know, what they weren't Shaolin monks. Is my point. Um, but in modern times, when you have the, you have this kind of, like, I would never attempt to learn kali or knife fighting on my own. Because yeah. inter interacting with somebody else in combat is very different than teaching yourself. Um, having body awareness is great, but having body awareness as it pertains to somebody else, how somebody else is going to move, how many permutations there are for, for potential moves, that's where training comes in handy. And so it, it's great if you're self-taught, if you're self-teaching yourself in conjunction with that sparring component. right? You get to know and understand how, people, how other people move, how they're going to react, how they're going to respond. I would also argue that a lot of martial arts are useless in modern combat, right? Like there's people who are like, yeah, man, I'm like a third degree, third Don black belt and Wing Chun. I'm like, yeah, but you know what? Like, you know, people talk about Bruce Lee being the epitome of martial arts. Well, mm -hmm. you know, he got, he got his ass beat by Gene, Gene Pubel, right? Like, and, and that's because Gene was like huge. He was like six foot. He's like a gorilla. You know, so and, well, anyway. Bruce Lee was like 135 pounds. So yeah, it's like, like come on. there's wet. only yeah. so much. Yeah, there's only so much that you could do. Like, I mean, I, I'm a yellow belt in Shotokan karate, but I just knew it's like, okay, like I, I stopped kind of liking it because I was like, it's force upon force. So it's like, I mean, like at 135, like, yeah, like if somebody's 200, I couldn't take them. So that was like very frustrating. But, you know, like that's, you know, they do have their limitations. The at the, yeah. Sorry. <clears throat> at the same time, it's like, yeah, you can't be self-taught martial something when you haven't fought anybody. Like, yes. then it's just dance. It's performance art, exactly. right? So it's just like, which is beautiful within itself. But what does that look like to actually wield that sword, which could look really fancy? And you're just like open. You're doing all this stuff. Right. And somebody's like, ah, and just. Right. The guy shows it's up with just, the simplest move and takes you down. Yeah, so so that's the kind of thing of like that practice and you know, and I know a lot of the um, 
you know, like some of the moves that they have in training, it's sort of like, you know, like the discipline itself, like that strength training, um, they may not even be preparing you for how to respond to yep. the thing, but it actually does help. Cause I, I would say that my martial arts training, when I went to black college reunion in 1998, <laughs> I'm sorry. And I got physically assaulted. Oh, that's. I had my block game. No, it's funny. My block game was like really on. I was like, ha, ha, ha. Like I was just on it. So it does work. Doing martial arts training does work. And doing good blocks. It does. So, I mean, striking and blocking is is great. You you have to. It's it's just funny because the way that it's taught is designed to be taught by rote. It is designed to be taught sequentially. But mm-hmm. it's when you get to the more to, to like the blue, purple, quote unquote belts, mm-hmm. right? It's when you start to learn how to operate outside of just the, the katas, you know? Mm-hmm. So yes, you're absolutely correct. Like it's great for teaching how to move your body and how to, to move yourself, right? Mm-hmm. I'm sure you know that probably once you hit yellow belt, you, you walk differently, you know, you were like, <laughs> yeah, you know I mean, you were like, yeah, okay, right? I've seen some, I've seen some junk in the dojo. Um, <clears throat> <laughs> but yeah, like, um, and I, and the thing is that, yeah, like the lightsaber fights are not how fights would actually happen, but I think the lightsaber fights are a good demonstration of how a being that is that has sort of quasi supernatural abilities would would have a fight. Like I like the the prequel fights. I think I said this to you. I love the prequel fights. I I, I the the first Lucas movie simply couldn't afford a decent right you know a decent choreographer but the the thing is that in the in the sequels you had no excuse like <laughs> like Wu Bin and Yun Wo Ping who have entire companies set up right to teach choreography you could have used those people you could have used people from John Wick I wouldn't have but I mean you could have just saying so um Anyway, so that's that's I mean, my... even in the 80s like they could have actually pulled somebody they really could have if they I think that was the white supremacy that kept them with the mediocre fights because, I mean, we were watching Kung Fu movies and they That's were amazing. True. That's true. Kung Fu. So... Was, he did. But I, I only say he had a limited, he had a limited budget. Lucas in his, in the very first one, I will say in yeah. the second one, he had no excuse. 100% empire strikes back. Obviously star Wars, the first mm-hmm. movie was already a sensation. Mm-hmm. You had the money to hire somebody. Right. Mm-hmm. So I agree. So I, I'm not, I, I 100% agree with you. So, can we also, I have to mention this. Why does Ahsoka's ship only have a tail gun? I don't know. I don't, I don't understand the ship design, honestly. And well, it, it, there's no, there's nothing this... industrial about it. And there's nothing like, there's no like hard and fast rules about it. But it seems like her, her ship is just designed to be chased. Yeah, that's, that's what it just feels like, like. We're gonna make you a ship that you're just you're just running the, to be chased, right? Like it's like you're not even running that fast. You're not even that good. You're just right. You just got a sucky ship. And right. I mean, we saw in the run. prequel movies that like Jedi, like well, first of all, Luke Skywalker. How many how many thousands of people did he kill with that first that shot into the Death Star, right? And then of course in the prequels, you see Anakin and Obi Wan both have Jedi fighters, so that's a thing. And they were shooting forward. They had guns on the front of their ship. I'm trying to figure out why she is a ship that only has guns on the rear. I mean, I like the little callback to the the fighter scene from the first movie where they're being chased by the TIE fighters. Mm-hmm. But that was it. 
And so it feels like it feels like another one of these elements that's designed to just move the story sloppily forward. Yeah, and and I think that's that's what my beef is is like that. I mean, good writing isn't just a, it's not just about making all these little pieces just to move it forward, but that you're actually discovering something about yourself in that, or it's talking like, or some universal human struggle. And I'm just not feeling that in here. I'm not feeling like, like, what's, what's the, what's the point? Like, what is the moral of the thing? What is the thing that I could just be like, okay, I can like, have my, you know, like I could watch this and feel inspired or share this with a young person. And we can be like, you know, like reference it just like Ahsoka or just like, what is, what's, I forget the name of the main um, character. Like, I guess she's supposed to discover the force. Yeah. 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 You're like Sabine Wren. And and maybe just because I didn't watch Rebels that I'm just not, getting the point, but it's like, okay, you go and find the family that you have left. Like, I'm just not quite getting the, the, um, I mean, there's beautiful setting, like the design is very beautiful. So you have like setting, which is amazing. Um, you have like all the elements of what could be like a really good story of like deepening this world. Right. And, but I guess like, and then the conflict is like, they're just trying to, you know, it's the map. And then the map is trying to get you to like, okay, you're, they're trying to prevent Thrawn from coming. And there's also Ezra. And so maybe at the end, it's going to be some conflict where they have to make a moral choice, but I'm not getting the sense of like in their choices that they're making the, that's the thing that's driving the plot for, you know, driving yes. the plot forward. Well, it- Okay, so that was like so. Here's here's my here's my dystropia, for well, one of them anyway, which is what I call unforced errors, right? When you have a story and you have a clearly defined villain and a clearly defined protagonist, right? You don't the 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 the, pro, the, pro, the villain shouldn't advance his cause because you were dumb, right? He should just be so competent that the protagonist finds themselves on the back foot and they feel it's necessary to take extraordinary measures or to just really get their junk together, right? But Sabine, as you pointed out, she made a choice twice. And each time those choices were patently wrong and she knew they were wrong, right? Handing over the map, the whole point of everything you just did, right? Handing over the map and knowing that billions of people could potentially die because you want to see one person makes no sense it makes no sense so that's my dystropia unforced error sabine left you know she she got the the um the map initially from ahsoka and then left or was it the was it was it the map yeah and then left with it the jedi showed up the dark jedi showed up and took it from her right and then they got it back and then well they didn't get it back then they they followed them to this you know this planet they see the map she points her gun at it, and the guy's like, come with me to go. We know you want to see Ezra Bridger. And it's like, dude, come on. Like, I know he's your quote-unquote family, but it's an unforced error. It didn't need to happen. You know, there should have been some 
he should have just force yanked that out of her hand or something. You know, something else should have happened. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Something else should have happened. Not just she... like she's like a weak character. Like I just felt like that was like a weak, like her morality is very weak and she's supposed to have been so heroic. So it's like, what was her heroism if she went through all of that and then she could just give up everything? Like she should have just blasted the thing, which I was like, okay, she's going to blast it. She's going to jack her hand up. So I was like, okay, I could see her delay. Like he's like, I'm going to lose my hand. But it was like, but I just like. Yeah, that's, that's life in the know. city. Yeah. <laughs> I would have been like. Anakin lost his hand. Luke lost his hand. Screw it, Bazap. I know. I'm uh, maybe I'm just is my level up, you know. And so, yeah, I don't. Well, she's and the thing is that she is immoral. It wasn't even that she didn't. She failed to make the moral choice. Let's be clear. You know, a lot of what we do, a lot of our morality is defined by the choices that we make. And yeah. she she chose a selfish desire over the well being of millions. Which in itself yeah. makes her unfit to be a Jedi. And she even said, what did Ahsoka say to her? Can I trust you? And she's like, yeah, you can trust me. Yeah. Guess not. So unless, unless there is like going to be a whole thing where um, we discover she did a switcheroo, like, you know, like, which... So I'm just hoping, I'm like, writers, you better get it together because this, I mean, it just makes her very much unlikable, very much unlike a Mandalorian, you know? Like, I'm just like, that's just weak of character. And, um, you know, we just got to, like, have her, I don't know. So that somehow there's got to be some redeemable qualities. So I so far, say I'm not like, Yeah, I mean... It's just like for people who love Rebels and you just want to see more of Ahsoka and, you know, like that's the thing. I know they got good reviews, but. Well, can I say too like, that, go ahead, mm -hmm. go ahead, no, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's like, like it's great to see some of the diversity mm -hmm. and stuff, but I mean, had I not really committed to this and watched Clone Wars, I probably would have been like, I'd have been like, I would have passed or. I'm like, I'm like kind of tempted to like, there is that temptation where I'm just like, okay, am I going to watch it? Like today's Tuesday. Am I going to watch it this week? No, I mean, I'm going to delay. Um, here's a, here's a question for you. Yeah. Is it just me or does it feel like this is really the Sabine and Ezra show and not Ahsoka? I, I want to yeah. hear your thoughts on Ahsoka specifically, but more generally, this this propensity for Hollywood to sideline women of color in their own stories. Yeah, I mean, the central character should be Ahsoka. And it just seems like they don't really get into her heart, you know, like they don't get into her conflict. They don't get into her struggle, which is which has so much potential, right? Like in her training and why she walked away and you know because there are the, you know and, and and that is something like where in a universal struggle for storytelling like whether storytelling all of us have walked away from something where we may think you know maybe i walked away too soon what if what if i had just stayed and to if they could have driven a beautiful and elegant story just focused on her what if and her trying to redeem that what if but I just feel like they don't go there for like her what if you know and that regret and what like and they're just 
maybe just starting to try to do it now, but I just don't see it as like the driving force. Like right. that, that, that's good storytelling when you just have like that inner conflict that somebody has and it's like, they're kind of making it very external. So that's, that's, that's my, you know, community college writing one-on-one. That's a great analysis. And, and cause one of the things I, I, I always like, I was curious about too. Number one, she's to Gruden and it was a great opportunity for them to flesh out the Gruden culture. Like they did with the Mandalorian. We knew very little about mm-hmm. Mandalorians visually um, and how we discover through the Mandalorian TV show that Boba Fett's really the outlier, right? It's J- it's Din Djarin who is like the hardcore Mandalorian, right? Um, but then if you look at Ahsoka, we don't know. We still don't know anything about Togrudens, except for what I, like, I read in Wikipedia. I don't know anything about Togrudens. But also the fact that her her master, her Jedi master, became the most powerful Sith of all time that has to stain somebody's soul. Like there, that has to imbue someone with a really deep seated sense of, you know, it may even interfere with her connection to the force. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's like, you're right. There was such an opportunity there for some beautiful writing and they made the whole show about, they're making the whole show about Sabine, which is really reduced to a trope, right? Friends to lovers trope. If that's what it is, right? Everybody's not, everybody's waiting for Sabine to be thrown into the arms of Ezra and they kiss and they draw their lightsabers and kick ass. And I am personally don't really care about that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's it, you know, and then you, you also have the parallel between like the dark, the dark Jedi and then the like two non Jedi. Right. So <laughs> it's just kind of like, so, you know, it's, there's a lot going on there, but I, I, I feel like the, what I really want to talk about is foundation. I found okay, let's do it. even with, with some of the things that we kind of constantly see, which they, they keep, you know, digging, digging their heels in on with some of the, the, the tropes, like the racialized aspects, who, who disappears from the story. Right. And who, like, whose story is this really about? Like and that, um, that foundation is really about white men's power and, and a robot that is, you know, gender fluid, you know, <laughs> it's just right. like, that's kind of like, but it's a white robot, you know, red is right. White. Right. And, right. A phenotypically um, white robot. Yep. Yeah. And so, you know, like what is power in, in this, um, in this universe, like in this world, and I, I want to talk about it. There's so much to talk about in Foundation. Wow! Like, I mean, you're, I mean, you're, you're talking about it. So, like, let's, yeah, let's hear it. I mean, we'll, we'll say. I mean, what was the the, the previous ep- what episode are we in? Because I just, you I know, I'm bad like, with we're numbers. Like, we're, like, we're like eight or nine, I think. I'm bad with numbers. I'm bad with dates and names. It's, it's no good. wonder why, you know, I'm a PhD dropout. You know, <laughs> just kind of. Like I'm sure that had nothing to do with it. I love the Grand Duray history. They weren't feeling my philosophy. Like, like I would have been, like, I was on that psycho history chip of the adult school. Like, I was just, like, all about the long Duray history right. and what was inevitable that would happen. So psycho history is probably, like, my, you know, nerd out, you know, type of thing when you're looking at, you know, like, what are the calculations that would go into that? Um, so the, um, like, I mean... 
the the previous episode was seven because like we're in the pinup ultimate episode but i mean we get the story of um you know we get the story of uh like through the eyes of empire right like and and we get a sense of like of um of just like what is power and and relationship and so that was like wow like that that was very um there were some aspects that were like hard to watch you know like when you're thinking about it and maybe that's like one of the themes i could carry over which is just like what is the trauma bond between somebody that like between master and servant you know between you know somebody in power and somebody that um is um the servant, you know, and you're like, oh, I'm caring for you, but they're like incomplete, you know, they're in control of that relationship. So I felt like with that, with Demerzel, um, so it's like you got to see in some ways a little bit more of Demerzel's world, like experience, um, and just like how long that was. And in some ways, like that sounded so lonely and, you know, the only of their kind, but then having this bond, like, what type of resentment do you have like for a creature that has that long amount of memory compared to like a human, but then the only comparable thing is a human that's memories are like, that's like a shadow. Yeah. Tran- but only some of the memories, not all the memories, like right. they don't even get the memories of the previous life. So right. What type of, like, I'm like, why didn't they transfer the memory? Like, why didn't Empire just transfer his memory? Why was it in threes? Right. It was like he was a never a complete person after that original one. So he, maybe he did have that ego, like, yeah, who comes after me is never fully me, but enough of me that Demerzel is like, Demerzel, I'm butchering that name. Um, That's right. Still, compliant or still loves them but what is love like it's like when i watched invincible like i remember that one scene like where he's telling us like that what is i forget the 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 arch villain right who's the father and he's telling his son he's like i loved your mother just like i loved a pet you know like it was just like when you're that like that level of cognition and memory like you're not like demerzel's not human and there's so much more that they have to know. And so I, I think I, I did get that, that whole, um, that whole contempt that a really smart person has for like a dumb partner. <laughs> it's just like, just kind of like or, or a pet. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I got that too. And the interesting thing I thought about it too was is I, I the allegory that I detected in this because granted her programming having been modified meant that she was bound to to not harm any of the Cleons and to protect them but the, as pre in previously right the three laws they the robots found a way around it right she's been with the Cleonic dynasty for over 800 years right and you're telling me that in that time period she could not have interpreted her programming differently. And so what that reminded me of is in modern times about how there are so many white women who are proponents for and enablers of 
white male patriarchy, right? But they are ultimately concerned with their own privilege, right? They recognize that their own privilege is attached to that. And they're not really interested in egalitarianism. They're interested in maintaining their power. And yeah. like, I saw that in Demerzel. I was like, this is a woman who, uh, a, a, even though she's an android, right? She, she even said to Empire, she said, I initiated a sexual relationship with you in the hopes that you would become this other person, right? So she's clearly, obviously got her hands on the wheel, right? She's steering the empire. She just failed to do it in a way that came out to an optimal outcome. And the interesting thing is, is that if she were really committed to her own freedom and at, at all, even just her own freedom, right? She would have been steering the empire in probably a different direction altogether, right? She would have been steering the empire and saying, okay, well, this may not be directly helping and, and soothing the ego of Cleon, but at the end of the day, it's going to dismantle. Because at the end of the day, too, she could have said, you know what? This Cleonic empire is, a, is, a, is an abomination. It actually harms Cleon. I should find a way to destroy it so that they yeah. can go off and live their own lives. But she didn't do that. She perpetuated it. Yeah, it's like build, building up all the apparatus to uphold, uphold it. I, I'm really like about, you know, challenging the discussion. Like, I mean... Privilege is one thing, right? But I, I think that there is the the domination, like we have to really kind of call it for what it is. I mean, when you think about like during like during history, like in um, the the way that white women got earned property during the slavery times was through slaves. Like that's like George Washington's wife, like he inherited his wife's slaves. Jefferson inherited his wife's slaves. So they would just get passed on like people um and uh, that the position of you know like where feminism was was to maintain like was to aspire towards white male domination um and so it's like all the arts of of dominating and it could be like yeah we're in solidarity as long as we're still in a position of dominance in the movement whether that's Native American solidarity by like cosplaying as Native American. So we have, you know, one of the articles that I quote a lot, which I'm like, oh gosh, I got to get out of it. It's like Andrea Smith. And, and it's like, is and Andrea Smith Native American? There's no people that say that she is, but she, she's been in a position of dominance in, in studies, like, you know, as opposed to like saying like, you know, maybe I should just, go get a job and, you know, allow a Native American woman to, you know, like uh, an indigenous woman to take this position. It's like her position had to always be in the preeminent role. And so Demerzel is like really like that, um, that like a big metaphor to me of both the race to innocence, like how they depict it is like, okay, she was captured, split up and that kind of like that way is displaced and not free for hundreds of years, right? And like for, gosh, was it? It was like 800 years, 800, you know, or... Well, she'd been serving for 800 years, but I think she had been in in prison in that place for a couple thousand. Yeah, what what could that do for AI, you know? And so so you're kind of feeling for, for her, but like really it's like, what is the ultimate end goal? Um, and it is that ultimate thing of being in a position of dominance, not really in servitude. 
um, or just an equality or a partnership. Like it's like, it is just like, I'm going to dominate you and I'm going to dictate the terms of things. And so that, um, that is just, it was just very, you know, it was just very, it was a little chilling, um, and just scary, especially in doing this kind of work that, that I do. It's like, what is that when you're, when you are a threat to that domination, when you're not, when you're a, a black woman, like, what is like the name of our, our queen who's like, you know, like Sarah. I'm Sarah, I'm scared for her. I'm just yes. like, they're going to take you out, sis you better get out of there. And because it's like, if you're a woman of color, if you're a black woman, especially when they see black women is like our whole purpose for being around is just to care for them and their children. Like that's ingrained yes. in the psychology of any American writer. It's like, that's like in the soup, the the sea, the ocean that we're we're swimming in. And so I'm like really worried about her because when she's not fulfilling that purpose, like you, you know, so, so I feel like that's going to be the main tension yeah. that we're going to see is like, is she going to make it? Is, can she make it? Is, is it, is all hope lost? Cause we kind of see like who gets taken out in this. Um, well, Demerzel reminds me of Sarah Paulson's character from 12 years a slave, right? Where she's, where Michael Fassbender is 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 whipping Lupita Nyong'o and she's egging him on, you know what I mean? That's what Demerzel. I was like when I was w looking at that character, I was like, oh my god, that's Sarah Paulson's character, where she was like beat it out of her, and I was like, oh man, um, yeah, that but, was so brutal and it was painful to watch because her name was like Lucy, right? Like it was just like I watched like that her, movie exactly one time and did not watch it. I again. can't watch it again. Yeah, I that movie broke me. Um, and yeah, like just when, when, when a black woman is in a space of power and she's not serving the, you know, the people that see themselves as the dominant group, like we are meant to be served upon. It's like, it's like the, the threat it's, it's a very scary position to be in. Um, well, I, I want to draw, like, oh. draw a connection real quick because <laughs> mm -hmm. there's one part of Ahsoka that I wanted to mention, but I want to relate it to what we're talking about now because um, clearly you have Demerzel who's coming out as sort of the power behind the throne and she's a white woman. And then you have the Cleonic Empire and they're white. Then you have Gail, right, who's black, Gail and Salvor who are both black, right? You have Ahsoka who is, you know, Afro-Latina, right? She's but, orange. She's kind of like... She, right. Brown she's, she's, is a form of orange, though. So, which, which I'm by like... the way, it's it's no coincidence that to me, in my mind, that Ahsoka being a an orange woman, right? But let's just say, for all intents and purposes, an Afro Latina, it's no coincidence to me that cause they would never sideline a white woman in that story like that. And as I was watching it, I thought about you, and, and I kept thinking to myself, "She's a Jedi mammy. She Ooh. is a she is a Jedi mammy. That's what she is. She is a." movement mammy jedi mammy mammy she's a she's a mammy mcguffin right and when i look at them i compare that with the story of salvor and gail right who spent all of this time in this conflict with Tellum, right it this conflict comes to a head where salvor beats up that the the guy who was getting into her mind and pretending to be her boyfriend and uh gail is in is in a fight getting her ass beat by Tellum. 
right? Not even getting any, not even getting any shots off. And the whole thing comes to a head basically when Harry miraculously shows up and cracks her in the head. And I was like, wait a second. So after all that, Harry is still the damn savior, right? Yeah, that was, that, that wasn't cool. That wasn't cool at all. <laughs> like, but it's, it's but, just but, like, am I, am I, am I using that incorrectly? That is a, that, no. that I, I feel like that's a mammy moment for both characters, all three of them. Well, one, it's like, well, you're the white savior moment. So he goes and kills a Pacific Islander woman, the, the, the indigenous woman. Bam, that's it. Not, let me just switch your mind right. You know, it's like, kill the guy, right? You know, so they kill the people of color. They go with, with, with the uh, Harry. And, and I'm like, what the heck was he doing all this time? What the heck, you know? Right. Can we really trust? Like, who is this? I predicted um, that, by the way. Remember, yeah, I said I, I think it's just because he was brought back to life in a human body, it's probably not a human body. It's probably a robot body. But please, please go on. Go back two episodes. So I coming that. back, yeah, yeah. Your your predictions are just. Thank so you, you for bringing that back. Yeah, please, I was like, wow. And plus, he wasn't all bloated. How are you going to be in the water? That's what got me. Because I was like, you know, like what water does, like water damage or water drowning, like, you know? And I was like, he was already pruning. Like, I mean, he was already pruning, but he didn't like fluff up, you know? Like he could have been like, you know, like the skin gets kind of smooth yes. and you kind of. I just meant that this is natural, water. the pruning, like it's, like it's kind of his natural state. It's like his default state. Yeah, I just didn't see the decomposition. So I was just like, I was just like, I don't know what's happening here, but they're just messing with my mind here. So that's how I felt last week. So the, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I really, the, the idea, like, what is the role of black women in these series? Right. So, so, you know, the movement Mammy is this, it's, it's a, combination of the magical negro and the mammy right like the mammy who's the caretaker the magical negro whose whole sole existence is there for the transformation of the main character um you there's this belief that black people had some natural super tapped into the supernatural and spirituality um and so um, in tons of films where you have the magical Negro who's there to impart some wisdom um, upon a white character so that they could go on their journey. Um, and they only exist for that purpose. Like they don't have an internal struggle in, in and of themselves um, that would make you really empathize with them or just even worry about what's, what's, what's at stake for them. So um you know, to see them suffering so much in this, like, really just drag them out, like, fight was, like, it was pretty brutal just seeing, you know, just seeing my sister's brutal, like, mother and daughter pair being brutalized. Um, and then he just comes in and was like, whack. And that's it. Like, it was just like, you know. Uh... Yes. It, it, it really, number one, it, depri it really deprived them of agency, that entire scene. But mm -hmm. in particular, when he when, when Harry shows up, but also there was a part that that there was a part that really got under my skin, too, which was when Salvor was fighting that black guy. I forget what his name is. Do you know I'm saying watching watching a black man commit these abject levels of violence against a black woman on behalf of somebody else, really? And even though Tellum is an indigenous woman, 
they're all wearing white, right? So like to me, and then and then in the and then the fact that he kept putting on that that white guy's face, it somehow made it worse. I can't explain it exactly, but it was like he was assuming the violence of he. It's almost like he was superimposing that colonial violence on on himself to use it against her. Like that's how I felt. I don't know yeah. if that makes sense, you know, but allegorically, I felt like I was like, man, you know. First of all, why is she still falling, falling to that trick? And second of all, you guys are really going to keep pushing these terrible tropes. Yeah, for me, though, um, <clears throat> I thought what got me was um, her moments of tenderness where she felt a little vulnerable was with the white guy's face and not the brother's face, right? It's like, she yeah. it was like, oh, am I going to fight you, black man? You know, and it was like, and he did say like, oh, you're, you know, like, like he saw himself as like horrific with the burns. And I'm like, he wasn't a horrific looking man. He had some scars and, you know, we you know, like, I mean, like a lot of times scars can add character, especially the way that when it's gendered. But I was just like, this is a, this is really a messed up allegory. Like, I just don't know if they were really, un, or they're just like, yeah, nobody's going to get it. Nobody's right. going to get it. Nobody's going to really feel a certain exactly. kind of way, but I was feeling the kind of way where it was like her tenderness was the white, you know, her white partner's face. Then it's like the violence was like, here's a black man and a light skinned black woman fighting. And I was just like, oh gosh, like this is what they want. And then it's like where, um, where, um, you know, Harry just came in and just whacked like his just power and just like taking out Tellum was just what I would have liked to see I know like there was that whole tension that 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 prediction right of like where um Gail is worried about her daughter dying um where it's like you have a moment of growth through the fight where through their mother-daughter bond they're able to overcome that. yes that yes. would have been some powerful storytelling like let's get outside the tropes and not just this psychohistory person but I mean, we saw like um, Sour Harden like save her mother, but it's like, but the actually instead of they save that they save each other through coordination, right? That black women like the reality is like black women a lot of times we only got us like when we're under the kind of threat of people trying to dominate, and if we're committed to each other in solidarity, I just don't. I just think psychohistory. And the determinism in psychohistory is another form of um, colonialism control, systemic, systemic oppression. You know, like interesting, very oh, interesting. I predicted this outcome, and we got to move towards this outcome. And it doesn't matter what you your individual individual choices. We don't even know. Like, I mean. Like, is this going to be the case? I mean, is this going to be the case, or what? You know, what do some of the changes and outliers, how does that change the ultimate outcome? So it's like, I, I'm still kind of struggling. And am I really believing that he's really proven psychohistory? Does he have enough? Did he demonstrate enough evidence to me to be like, this is truthful? And and would that make Empire be like, yeah, I believe you. I mean, Empire, we know, is a douche. But it's like, 
I mean, in some ways, like you see people trying to be like, oh, for the greater good, for the greater good, we'll deal with this douchery here. And, you know, which includes just wiping out this whole planet of people. So well, it's funny that you mentioned that because the thing that I got from it also was psychohistory is an allegory for white empiricism, right? Which is basically this idea that, you know, oh, through. Um, science and through scientific, you know, discovery and through mathematical probability and through statistics, we have proven that we are superior and everybody else is inferior. You know, mm-hmm. like like people love to say that that black people kill right other black people in far greater numbers than white people than police do, right? So, it, it, what what about black on black crime? But the, the part that they completely like to omit is the fact that every single ethnicity in america kills its own in greater numbers than everybody else Mm -hmm. right like murder for example is is for whatever reason systemically or socially is a an in-group dynamic right we tend to murder others like ourselves first so close to us you know you're like you're like are you more likely to like if you're right. a woman, you're more likely to be killed by a family member. So it's those that are close to you. Right. Or friends. Right. And, you know, intimate, mm-hmm. partner, intimate partner violence. Right. And so when I see, and, and honestly, this idea of white, white empiricism has kept uh, African-Americans, especially, but people of color out of science fiction since its inception. Right. With, mm-hmm. with, very, few, with, with the very few exceptions. Right. This idea of, oh, it's not hard science fiction enough. And as somebody who's read a lot of science fiction, I went back and read a lot of stories by Asimov and by Clark and by whatever. And guess what? Their junk isn't terribly scientific either. That's a myth. A lot that of they, magical thinking. A lot of magical thinking. And and so the reason why, and I'm going to relate this back to the Fresh Pulp mission, the reason why we look at theoretical fiction has nothing to do with setting up an alternate form of of, of empiricism or, or even determinism. The objective is to help people think critically about you know, we live in it. We live in a scientific age, and we live in an age where science and discovery is outstripping our ability to legislate it or even interrogate it properly. And I want people thinking about how these things are going to impact us. You know, because the way that you arrive at those conclusions about science, or quote unquote, the hard science, is through social science, right? So you can't interrogate science by because then, then it just becomes a proof that proves itself, right? It needs to be interrogated socially. The social impacts. Definitely. Thank you for that. I mean, one of the main reasons why I am committed to the mission of Fresh Pulp is because through theoretical fiction that we can interrogate the magical thinking of our quote unquote social science of our quote unquote science, like certain assumptions that we have about what makes a human human why do we like what is our economic system what is our political system and then when you have a commitment to some reasonable laws of physics right some reasonable and you try to create an ordered world to imagine what could be how would resistance look like then that opens us up to to understand that this that the world could be a lot different and that we can move that forward and so it's through the radical imagination but not just a magical thinking imagination where I can like pull up some powers from the earth and reset things or reset time, but really like what would happen if there's one technology that changes or 20, you know, 200 years from now, if we have 
another power source? What, what would that look like? How would people ne negotiate that? And that just allows us to, um, to be much more critical about what's the orthodoxy that we have now. Like, I mean, so much of our scientific thinking that um, we have now is just based on assumptions. Um, and when we look back at science and during the enlightenment, you know, like, I mean, they justify racism. They yep. thought people yep. came from different, you know, different types of animals and creatures like they 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 use science to justify the social order that they created yep but if we're able to as people who've been impacted by western empiricism and scientific thinking this science that was used to explain the social order and the, the systems of domination but we are able to question that and create other worlds other possibilities then you know that can open things up for future generations. Agreed. I, I, I want to, that is, I, I could not have said that any better myself. So that is, um, so 100% thank you for, for that beautiful elaboration. I wanted to also mention, it's not even an elaboration, really. It's just, you just, you just blew my whole point out of the water. So what I wanted to say too, is one of the things that struck me also really quickly about the foundation was how they, I was reading a, a, a I was reading a, a a paragraph by a Nigerian writer named Ben Okri, and he said that um, that I'm going to butcher this quote, but he said you can poison a, a nation by poisoning its stories, right? Mm. And this is one of the ways that one of the reasons why we do what we do. Right, because we because the way you draw the poison out is by understanding that the that the, that the story and therefore the narrative is poisonous. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I saw also in I keep seeing in Foundation is how violence is always the exclusive domain of white men, right? Mm -hmm. Or of you know of agents or actors acting on behalf of white men. Harry mm -hmm. can't comes in and saves the day by basically killing um, you know Talon. Right. Despite the fact that these two black women are fighting for their lives for the preceding 10 minutes of the show, he comes in in one second and puts an end to it. And this idea that people that that like Salvor seems to and, and not and not just her, but a lot of characters of color are always written to have this aversion to ultimate types of violence. Mm -hmm. Right. Tell was killing her mother. Right. Taking her body and Salvor, while using those little discs, was was a good idea her first action should have just been to shoot tell and put an end to all of it like that would have the because the, the, she had her gun the idea that 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 what i'm saying is that these systems these empires these imperialist systems they rely on the unwavering morality of people of color to to continue to exploit them right and to me an act of precision, precise and judicious violence, and it, it can can be as much a furtherance of peace as peace itself, right? Sometimes you just need to cut the head off the snake, right? And I'm not trying to be militant here or anything, but if I were in that situation, I would be like, just shoot her, right? <laughs> like you wouldn't have to go through this yeah. big ass this big ass fight. Um, but also when I look at that the the black guy who 
like you said, she was vulnerable to him when he wasn't the black guy. And he, they, they had a moment where I thought that they bonded in a few episodes ago. And I thought that was yeah, cool. Yeah, and that just made that e- extra painful. Like, I was like, dang, that, they were like vibing. And I was just like, so that just really sucks. Like, you know, like, I mean, it just really bothered me, like how that ended as opposed to it being like, this is painful for him. Maybe there was some mind control, like, there could have been like something that just really made that fight like just so difficult for both of them because it's like just like how lonely it is like you go through like this long sleep you lose your partner here's somebody that it's like you could connect to and then now you got to fight to save what you think is good i also feel like the the thing that kind of bothers me about this kind of storytelling um like that, that I've, I guess I've been struggling with, with the seasons of what we're talking about is that, that it's like they make the villain so villainous that it's just like, you're just like, what, like there's no like, or just so weak or so, ugh, you know, like you're just, you, there's no like, I understand like what this conflict, I understand what's driving them. It's like there's, and so the the other part that makes it which what you've brought up john is so important is that that the the monopoly who has a monopoly on violence and who has a monopoly on being able to being morally gray and when it comes to storytelling when it comes to just even really living life right and and i saw this during the barack obama administration when it comes to the grayness of leadership when you're a head of state automatically you're a murderer. Like you have the monopoly on violence to wipe out people's like whole things. So, but it was like the idea that blackness is supposed to be sainthood. Like you're only justified in existence and living and existing is in servitude to other people. And you don't have that space. Like when it's like, whether it's a, if a black person has some type of prejudice, then it's like unjustifiable. And if a black person has some type of violence, you know, or ignorance, it's like, it's unjustifiable as if they're taught, like instinctually we should know through, and this is, this is the bias. It's like that out of all the people in the world that black people should have the most empathy because of what we've been through. That's an underlying assumption. Yes. And so that's, so therefore black people can't be prejudiced. Black people can't just say, you know what, I want to dominate right now, and I'm going to just be here and dominate. They have to have be some type of tragic mulatto where they're just, you know, in a position of like complete vulnerability or be saintly to exist or be spiritual. Like you have to be just one of those things, like deeply spiritual, saintly, and almost like virginal, you know, in your just pure in your intention to justify your existence as a black person in a position of power. And that is like really the bias. And you could see the backlash that yep. that when a black person like does a black leader does something, the like the cancellation of the like they get Where's canceled the first. Yeah, wears a brown suit, you know, if they say something that has some bias, they get canceled in ways that nobody else gets canceled. And I I find that here, like that they're the writers are playing into that bias. 
um, and like the actors that they chose, who they put in the position, who they casted, because there would be that backlash. There would be an audience backlash if Empire, say if Empire was black, if Demersal was a woman of color. You mm, know what I'm saying? That would like be deep. if yeah, like what would the audience reaction be? But that but the only way that you can break the cognitive bias, right? The the dominant narrative is to upend it, to to um to challenge it, to show different things. Like people are just not used to seeing black people in power. They're used to seeing us in servitude or yes. being saved by whiteness. You bring up a good point. That is such a incredibly powerful and well-made point but you you also bring up a, one of the things that that struck me about the fight and, I, and there's so much there's to unpack with this this fight between salvor and, and that other guy one of the things that struck me about it too i think is he talked about his scars and how he was unattractive and and while i initially saw that when he first said it when they were down by the ocean i initially saw that as a as a literal interpretation of, of what was happening in the story when they actually got into their fight at the end I took a more meta I took a more metaphorical allegorical approach to it because what that signified to me even though we don't know how we know how he got the scars but we don't know who scarred him right mm -hmm. but the fact that he kept using that white guy's face that signified to me is how there are these rifts that get created by people by men and women of color they're scarred by imperialism they're scarred by capitalism they're scarred by colonialism they're scarred by racism they're scarred by it and what happens is that we over time because we internalize not just those our own scars but each other's we turn away from each other and toward turn towards the thing that scarred us which is what happened in that fight if that makes any sense i think that's the part that I, it, it took me a minute it's something you said just a minute ago that that helped me put that point together but i was like yes yes like this is exactly why i hate that fight so yeah um, so, do, do you know what i mean about i have one more one more thing to add yes Frank yes Phenom, black faces white masks yeah that was like that his he would only be saved he was only fully human with the white face like and i'm just like the writers didn't see that like really like mm -hmm. that was I mean, because that's one of one of the most powerful decolonial like cr critiques of colonialism and the psychological damage that it does on black people. And then that we had that he's putting on the white face, he's putting on the white face and like how we have to mask and how we have to do that just to just to survive, just to get a little tenderness. And I'm just like, wow. So just what you said, and I'm just like, France Fanon and like, now I'm gonna have to go read some France Fanon. Now I'm gonna have to like really think about, right. rethink my life and what Ain't am I doing with yes. myself. And um, you know, like it is just uh, you know, the condition condition of a native is a is a nerve or a condition of a native is a nervous condition. Mm -hmm. Let me make sure I get that quote right because I feel like a because that like uh, nervous conditions is one of my favorite books. Um, it's like, a con I don't know if it's like the, it's like the condition of a native is a nerdive, nervous condition. And that's from Jean-Paul Sartre's, um, pro and I'm butchering it. Okay, so say, so say the horrible. whole, say the whole thing again so I can get a blurb. 
Okay, the condition of a native is a nervous condition. And that's uh, Jean-Paul Sartre's preface to France Fanon's The Wretched of the Earth. Mm. It really is. And that to have to put on a white mask to have some hope of survival, that gutted me, really. I think that's what we're just stuck on. And that they didn't quite get that in the yeah. casting and, you know, or in the, in the writing of that fight scene. But it, it, it definitely was activating. Um, and I think that's some of the perils of when they're doing um, multiracial, when they're doing the swirl, like we gotta be careful like what we're meaning, like when we're doing interracial relationships, because right. it's like, we're, we're not, we're swimming in the soup, right? Of, sure. of these narratives of white supremacy. So like things that can reinforce it or just even activate us to be like, wow, like that, that was, I mean, I felt for him. Yeah, I felt for the character. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And if you, and it, and the thing is, I don't, I don't, I don't have a problem. I mean, I didn't have a problem with Salvor Hardin's relationship with that guy. It was when it was weaponized against her that I had the problem, right? Yeah. Um. So anyway, I'm not that. That's a whole other thing. Right now, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna call time on this one. We. This was a. This is a great discussion. Um. Thank you again for being with us. Marguerite Hill, who is the um, co-founder and executive director of Muslim Arc, my co-host, my brilliant um, co-host and critical cultural co uh, commentator. Thank you for being with us. Please go and check out Muslim Arc's website. Please go and check out their social media. Please donate some ducats to the cause, ducats in the buckets. Um, I am Jay Austin Yoshino. I am your host and the editor-in-chief of Fresh Pulp Magazine. Thank you all for being with us. And we are going to move to a different format. We are going to continue doing these recordings, but we are going to record them as podcasts and upload them. So we will not be live streaming them um, for the time being, but we'll probably come back to you at some point. So, but we thank everyone who has supported us so far. Please support us. Donate, like, subscribe. It helps. And thank you very much. And everyone enjoy the rest of your day.